You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey there, John. Hi, Glenn. How you doing? This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show. Blogheads.tv. I'm with John McWhorter, Columbia University. I'm at Brown University where the black guys at Blogheads.tv, and we're back. John McWhorter, the man. What's going on? <laughs> well, I had a piece last week that we should probably talk about where I revisited the 1619 idea. Oh, where yeah. Times had that series, beautiful in itself, arguing that America's founding should be thought of not as at 1776, but at 1619, when the first bound Africans were brought to these shores, with the key idea being that we didn't know that the Revolutionary War was not fought because of those ideals about, you know, not liking taxation without representation, wasn't about Locke and Rousseau and the Declaration of Independence. All that is just boilerplate. The Revolutionary War was fought in order to preserve slavery. And this is something that the leader of the project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, puts forth. And we've talked about the 1619 Project before, but why I felt moved to write about it for reason last week is that serious historians and ones that it would be very hard to call racist, at least any significant degree, people like Gordon Wood, Sean Willens, these people have the chops, have said quite respectfully but firmly that the idea that the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery or even mainly to preserve slavery, you know, there's not even any room for wiggling, just isn't true that Nicole Hannah-Jones and her assistants have, you know, singled out some statements, misinterpreted some facts in ways that really just come down to that they don't happen to be professional historians. And that doesn't mean that you can't say anything about history without being a professional historian. But in this case, I can just tell as an academic myself, that this is a matter of certain, you know, techniques and issues of context that they had no way of being aware of. But the idea that the Revolutionary War was fought because of slavery, it simply isn't true. I mean, unless Willens and Wood and the other ones are somehow lying to us, it's, it's painfully clear that there was a flub. What bothers me is that it's clear that, and I, I don't want to be too ad hominem about it being Nicole Hannah-Jones in particular, but she will never admit that there was a mistake, nor will any of her supporters. The Times has already said that they would not, you know, change what they said, what their points were. And it wasn't her who did the first offense. It was somebody else at the Times. And so it seems to me that this is an issue where a false claim about history was made, that black people are being taught to revise their self-image racially on the basis of. And it's based on something that simply isn't true. But it's going to be considered okay among a certain set sorts of people that we're always kind of shaking our fists about. It's going to be considered okay to elide that the central claim of this 1619 idea simply isn't true. So, when so it's hold, hold on, John. I just want to make sure I'm following you. You you assert that the central claim of the 1619 Project is the assertion that the revolution on which the country was founded was uh, that war was waged, that break from England was undertaken mainly on behalf of protecting slavery. Is yes. That, you're asserting that they're asserting that. And you're yes. saying historians, uh, very eminent historians, have contradicted that claim, saying that that's inaccurate. And mm -hmm. now you're going on to say they'll never admit that it's so. Right. The, the people who put together the 1619 yeah. Project. The New York oh, Times. And finally, just very quickly, 
what's annoying is that this isn't just something that ran in the New York Times magazine for 10 minutes, you know, and, and would be forgotten. This has been turned into curriculum material. So, you know, Buffalo schools are using this. And Buffalo isn't the only place. There's, of course, a podcast series. This is being used by serious people as a kind of indoctrination to especially young black minds to think that the whole story we tell about America and its founding is a lie. And it's not true. And yet, because the people who put this forward are either black or fellow travelers of black people, it's going to be considered okay by people within the culture that you and I inhabit to pretend that the truth isn't the truth. I'm not with it. How do you feel? Well, I'm not a big fan of the 1619 Project, and we've discussed it here at the, the Glenn Show you and I have uh, before. People can refer back to that conversation a few months ago. But but I want to uh, put some things on the table that I think if they were willing to respond to this criticism and defend themselves, they'd probably say. One of the things that they would say is, we never really asserted that it was the only thing going on. We just were saying there were some people who thought that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing I think they're going to say is, our main purpose is not to indoctrinate on behalf of our doctrine, but to disabuse people of the happy talk story that uh, American chauvinists are inclined to tell because the picture was really more complicated than that. I, mm-hmm. I think that's another one of the things that they're going to say. Um, we're fighting over the narrative. Okay. One narrative was Thomas Jefferson Declaration of Independence. All people are created equal, etc. Although you have to bear in mind that Jefferson was a slave owner who actually begat children with one of his slaves. So He's not exactly a paragon of virtue when it comes to talking about freedom and liberty. And have you read uh, notes on the state of Virginia? There's some things that are said about African people in there that will make your hair stand on end here in the 21st century. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they're going to say things like, you act as if history was just a sequence of assertions of true or false claims about historical events. But it's not. It's a getting into the texture and the warp and woof of those mm-hmm. events. Uh, and in fact, the uh, advent of the American nation state occasioned by 1776 um, was, was not what uh, the, uh, again, what the, the happy talk sitting on a hill people would have you think that it was. Uh, it was really uh, uh, deeply ambiguous in a lot of different ways as slavery was right at the, at the center of that. So, What's wrong with revisiting the national narrative and thinking a little bit differently about the 4th of July? You know, because that's kind of what we're talking about. What are we celebrating? What are we affirming? You know, what, what, and, and to engage in this happy talk amnesia, this whitewash of our history, um, is not necessarily to do the country, uh, in the 21st century with issues like immigration and, you know, Black Lives Matter and all of that uh, uh, right in front of us is not exactly to do us a favor. Yeah, and the simple truth is that your claim, this hypothetical person that we're talking to, your claim was that the Revolutionary War was fought mainly about slavery. Your claim was not that slavery was one of the factors. If that's all you meant, you wouldn't have aired it. 
You're saying that it was mainly fought because of slavery and that that's the story. And to the extent that the historical record simply doesn't bear out that mainly, you're out of court. I'm sorry with these people. Of course, there were views that people who fought the Revolutionary War had about slavery, especially in the South. Now and then you'll find somebody who says a little something about it. But the issue is, was this a motivating factor of the grand events that happened? And the answer simply is no. And to pretend, as I'm not I'm talking to you, I'm talking to a hypothetical person, yeah, for, yeah. You to pretend, for you to pretend as an intelligent and hyper-educated person that you don't know the difference between making a causal explanation and pointing to some background murmurings is false. So I think that, unfortunately, what these people are doing is subverting simple truth to a narrative that serves a purpose. And it's interesting. You can look at real, um, real clear investigations now. There's a very interesting article that um, Ian Rowe, thank you, Ian, pointed me to, showing that people who are taking this up around the country, black people around the country, really are explicitly saying that, for yeah. example, Nicole Hannah-Jones says that this is an argument for reparations. That's that's the purpose. Another person highly placed in one big city's educational hierarchy, a black woman, says, this is useful because now I can tell my students that for 400 years, we were ill-treated. We were behind for 400 years because of things beyond our control. So you don't have to be ashamed of the disparities that we deal with now. That is precisely what I said the 1619 Project was for a few months ago here. And here, this person actually bears it out. And the problem with this is, don't we already have enough awareness that the Founding Fathers were highly flawed people, many of them were slave owners, all sorts of things went on beyond the happy talk city on a hill business. They were human, there were economic issues, but do we need to tell this big fat lie? And okay. I have to say no. Hold on again, I just want to recapitulate. So you're saying um on, on the one hand it's a it's a uh, uh, indirect way of arguing for reparations. Mm-hmm this uh, effort to recenter the narrative around uh, 1619, the narrative of the story of the making of America. And also it's exculpatory. It's, it's a way of giving an account or an explanation, or if you will, an excuse for mm-hmm. the uh, social failures, high crime rates and prison rates, uh, out of like birth, low wealth holdings and so mm-hmm. Okay. Now, my hypothetical person who's pushing back on you is still going to continue. I mean, they're going to say, they're going to say, look, uh, yeah, there's going to be some argument amongst historians about exactly what were the most powerful motive forces going on in uh, the late uh, 18th century that led to the American Revolution. Uh, and there will be disagreement about what the significance of slavery was and the defense of slavery, although you will have to concede it wasn't a storybook about everybody on the you know, uh, signed up to defend liberty and, and freedom. After all, it was a slaveocracy that we're talking about here. They made their compromises with slavery and all of that. But let's just put that to the side for a moment and talk about America. Okay. First of all, um, the uh, uh, nature of American capitalism, this was Matthew Desmond's essay in that collection, is different because of slavery, because of plantation slavery. Uh, the U.S. had no really powerful left political movement 
It had some, obviously, populist and leftist and socialist, but they had nothing like the influence that they had in Europe. And as a result, the American welfare state looks completely different by the time you get to mid-20th century than the European welfare states. No national health insurance, no really thick safety net for uh, poor people and so on here in America. And that's because of slavery, because you see the uh, workforce in the United States was uh, was split by race, and that was a legacy of of, of slavery. Uh, they're going to say the, the very nature of the American politics today, and in particular the fact that you can get elected president without a majority of the votes, which is an uh, indirect consequence of the compromise that the framers of the Constitution made in order to protect the autonomy of states that wanted to be able to continue to practice slavery. And yet here we are with Donald Trump as president in part because of slavery. (laughs) Okay, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but it's only a bit of a stretch. We're talking about how to tell the American story here. And we want to insist that we need to recenter that story uh, away from the fairy tale of late 18th century enlightenment, liberalism being uh, finally realized in government institutions. And on behalf of something that, more realistically uh, and and seriously takes into account the the indirect consequences of slavery. All of those things are true. They're important. And most of the things that you just mentioned, that's a brilliant summary of those points, are not part of the warp and woof of how Americans think about their history. However, you have to consider, for one thing, that never will we, this enormous nation with a rickety education system, be a population with a sophisticated historical understanding, frankly, of anything. And this, I suppose, is the cynic slash conservative in me. But what you just said, yeah, that's important stuff. And we should all know it. But the idea that everybody is always going to be as sensitive to things like that as we might wish, I'm not sure I can say that I see that happening. But more to the point. All of that would be evading the issue. You know, the idea is not that the whole 1619 pamphlet is absurd. It's that because I think these people know that the finer points of history will never really get around, there is a grand story. There's a chorus. There's a leitmotif. The main thing we're supposed to be taking away is that the Revolutionary War was fought on behalf of slavery or mainly, which is basically saying the same thing. And if you cannot back that up, with a consensus of most or all modern historians, then you are out of court. And then somebody's going to mention the Dunning School from a hundred plus years ago, where you had people here, even at you know my Columbia, who are arguing that Reconstruction was a matter of the North screwing over the South. Yes, that was quite regrettable. And the problem is that when W.E.B. Du Bois fought against something like the Dunning School, he did it with facts. And here we are today with people who think that they're his heirs fighting this supposed myth that America was based on things like enlightenment philosophy with alternative facts. Suddenly, black America is becoming Kellyanne Conway. And I am almost ashamed to be an educated black person who is being represented to an extent by people who think this way. I think that everything you're saying is going to be said. But we have to keep these people's feet to the fire. They said that 1776 was about slavery, and it wasn't. And people are saying, well, there are always different perspectives about history. But then this George Dunning, wait, George Dunning was a movie soundtrack composer. I forget Dunning's first name. But Dunning, he would have said the exact same thing. In some cases, you have to deal with truth. And, Glenn, I'm just afraid that um, 
we're in this situation where a bunch of people in the name of enlightenment are incapable of processing nuance or frankly in distinguishing the trivial from the main idea. Yeah, you can find somebody murmuring something about slavery in the context of the Revolutionary War. That doesn't mean that the whole war was fought for that particular reason. And the facts show it. And you can't call Gordon Wood and Sean Willens racists. That that doesn't work. But unfortunately, very quickly, the problem is that there have been black people who have been aware of this, but refused to sign out of a sense that to sign with them would be evil. And I'm not going to name any names, but it means that the list ends up looking patriarchal and white when really there are a bunch of people out there who know that. Let, let me make sure people understand. You're referring to a letter, a public letter, an open letter of historians who've objected to the narrative of the 1619 Project. And you're mm-hmm. saying that some very prominent historians, among which are African-Americans, knowing that the letter's assertions about the 1619 Project are correct, and nevertheless, mm-hmm. withheld their endorsement of the reprimand to the New York Times because they don't want to be on the wrong. They they don't want to seem yeah. as if they're not woke, you say. Yeah. Okay, well, here, let me, and I'm not just doing this to be a devil's advocate. I really, I really actually believe some of this stuff. <laughs> um, there's <laughs> nothing, there's nothing new here in terms of the misuse and distortion of history on behalf of uh latter day political racial politics objectives nothing new to wit we were three-fifths of a person okay how many times have you heard that assertion made going without it being contested we were only three-fifths of a person okay when you and i both know that the provision in the constitution which does what calculates the representation in the federal government of the several states based upon a population count, which included, I can't remember the words exactly, free people and three-fifths of all other persons in determining the total population of a state or a congressional district so that you would know how much representation they got in the federal government which means that the lower was that number, three-fifths, two-fifths, one-fifths, the less power the slave states would have in the federal government. Mm -hmm. Therefore, from the point of view of an anti-slavery advocate, you would have wanted that number to be zero. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it was three-fifths can't possibly be evidence of the devaluation of the slaves It's rather evidence of a midpoint compromise between slave states and free states about how much power the slave states would have. And the lower that number, the closer that compromise would be to what an abolitionist would want it to be. (laughs) So so it it makes no sense. And that's just logic. I mean, there's no hidden fact there. Or, or, or there's no mention of the Civil War in the 1619 Project uh, essays. I actually couldn't find a mention at all in Hannah Jones's essay. I'm not going to say I read, read every word of every essay, but there's practically no mention of the Civil War. Well, that's a pretty astonishing thing when you consider the hundreds upon hundreds of thousands who were slaughtered in a conflict, the consequence of which was the termination of slavery. Here's another. Here's another. Lincoln freed the slaves with the 13th Amendment. 
the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and then the proposal, the enactment, and the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished involuntary servitude. Oh, no, it didn't, says Ava DuVernay, because it includes a clause that says you shall not understand this to mean that you can't put people in prison for breaking the law. The 13th Amendment has a backdoor trap that takes with one hand what it had given with the other because it uses incarceration as an indirect way of uh, reenacting slavery, slavery by another name. Come on, that's pretty re- I can remember, we, now that we're speaking of DuVernay, uh, her film Selma, the depiction of Lyndon Johnson in that film. Mm-hmm. And I can remember some historians pulling their hair about that. Mm-hmm. Because Johnson is depicted as being much more recalcitrant and less interested in actually advancing the civil rights legislation, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That, in fact, the historians say that he was. I don't remember anybody getting been out of shape about that. This caricature of Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the great figures of the 18th and 19th century. I mean, I don't. How do you get around that? Okay, and yet his entire uh, uh, presence in our national memory for some people rises and falls with Sally Hemings. Now. I don't want Sally Hemings left out of the story, Mm-mm. but she's hardly the be all and end all of Jefferson's persona in the context of, 19, of late 18th and early 19th century world culture. Mm-hmm. The trivialization of Jefferson to read him uh, uh, mainly through that lens or is it? Okay. So uh, those are some things that I would put on the table. You know, what it comes down to is that this is a rehearsal. America is a very interesting experiment. I'm not sure that the kind of people we're talking about fully understand that. This is a really interesting experiment. Nothing like this existed before America happened. It sounds so corny now, but I'm not sure they quite get that. And what are the chances that it was going to be perfect right away? And where do we get the idea that imperfection must not include the enslavement of Africans? We're talking about people two and 300 years ago. So, of course, it started quite imperfectly. And ever since then, slowly, we rehearse. We get better. It gets better and better. It's not perfect now, but it gets better. And if any of them want to say that it isn't, then they need to go back to 1750 and spend some time anywhere in the United States, including in New York City, where they're the first people to tell us there were slaves. So especially, you know, if you're black and you don't think we've made meaningful progress, please go spend some time, frankly, 50 years ago in Connecticut and then come back and say we haven't made any progress, you know, 50, frankly. So we're rehearsing. And here these people are in 2019, 2020. And instead of understanding that it's been a slow crawl, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't perfect, no, but it was pretty mighty stuff. Abraham Lincoln was he as unracist as, you know, whoever we're going to choose? Was he Tim Wise? No, he wasn't. But Abraham Lincoln had some views that made it possible for black history to advance. Did he think that black people needed to be sent back to Africa? Yes, for a while. But if you really read about his life, you find that he let that go after a while. In other words, this stuff is, one, complex, because human history is. And two, more to the point, America is an endless rehearsal. To say that the whole thing is invalid 
because of how Thomas Jefferson felt deep down about black people in 1820. You know what it is, Glenn, frankly, it's unintellectual. All of this is being presented to us as some kind of enlightenment. But really, these are people who are taking a meat cleaver to a tomato and telling us that they're the ones who have the higher wisdom. I don't believe them. And I feel it as a condescension that almost extends to you and me that anybody would listen to that rhetoric and call it enlightenment because the people have brown skin, really just because they're they're fucking scared. I don't like it. I find it unsmart, this whole thing. And then these are the first people who are then going to wonder why black people are considered less intelligent. Sorry, this just doesn't work. Yeah, well, I have a lot of sympathy for what you're saying. I made this point in our earlier conversation that, yes, America was founded as a a slave republic. At least a a significant part of it was a, a slave republic. On the other hand, uh, the slaves were actually emancipated, and that needs to be kept in mind as well. America was a work in progress, as you say. 1776 is not the end. Uh, it's the beginning, and uh, 1865 is uh, an important uh, stop along the way. So that seems to be one thing worth noting. Um, Martin Luther King believed America was a better country and a different country than many of these latter-day critics would appear. His whole public ministry is grounded on some ideals of appealing to uh, uh, America to move to higher ground. Was he Was he a hopelessly naive? Is it the king of the Riverside Church in 67 denouncing the Vietnam War, the king of the Poor People's Campaign? In that speech at uh, Riverside Church, he actually embraces uh, Ho Chi Minh and Mao Zedong and uh, Fidel Castro. When I say embrace, he says, these are not my enemies. These are not people that I want to destroy uh, because I'm a good Christian and I believe we can get along with our brothers. Was he? But but at the same time, this is the guy that talked about magnific- magnificent promissory note, you know, called America to its higher ground, who used the, you know, the uh, mythology of Christian uh, theology, which was widely embraced by his fellow countrymen to try to persuade them uh, to, you know, he was into persuasion. This this uh, the this latter day criticism isn't into persuasion at all. It's 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 more indoctrination isn't it it's more lecturing and whatnot so i'm 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 largely sympathetic you don't think however that a person who just says america is a force for good in the world um who says uh, uh about colin kaepernick who won't take a knee during the playing of the national anthem because he's pissed off about the uh, police brutality that's no way to conduct yourself you don't think such a person is being a little bit naive and credulous that they're mm-hmm. that they're forgetting about the extermination of the native population or they're forgetting I just saw this film Coup fifty three C O U P Coup fifty three. Um it is the story of the um of the deposing of Mossadegh, the uh, uh the Iranian yeah. uh, prime yeah. minister who was duly elected uh, and who had nationalized the British uh, oil production holdings in Iran and had uh, precipitated a, a conflict with the Brits into which the United States was drawn uh, 
uh, and the CIA and MI6 kind of collaborate together to take him out. And a lot of dirty stuff is being done. Uh, the next year, it was Guatemala. Six years later, it was uh, Lumumba, Lumumba in, uh, in uh, Zaire. Congo. Uh, and so on. Uh, you know, uh, America's got blood on its hands. Look how we fought the Russians for influence in Central America well into the 1980s. Um, you know, Vietnam, dare I say more? I mean, I say more Vietnam, Vietnam. Uh, so, uh, global, uh, colonialism, American neocolonialism, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah. America's not a force for good in the world. And the sooner we realize it, the better. And slavery is one of the main yeah. reasons for that. Yeah, I get that. I was raised in that, you know, surprise many people that I was raised on the left. I fully get it. My mother dragging me to marches for a nuclear freeze, teaching me about most of the things you just mentioned. Yeah. America has always been in a great many ways, a truly terrible thing. We are rehearsing. We get better. There are setbacks, but for example, the things that you mentioned are in the past. Now, there's an argument that all the same things are going on, although now it's being done with money and investment, but I think there are arguments against it. We are not the America of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We're not doing the sorts of things that Dean Acheson and Henry Kissinger casually oversaw. We get better, and on race, we get better, which means that Tamir Rice is going to be shot. You know, within the getting better, horrible things are sometimes going to happen, but it's better. And all I can see is that there's a certain kind of person who wants you to see the disproportionate amount of crime that's committed by young black men in the typical American city. And, you know, you can't gainsay the facts. You're supposed to see that, and you're supposed to understand that the reason for that is racism of an abstract kind. You're supposed to even think about now, you're supposed to think about 1619. You're supposed to think about redlining 50 years ago. That's a kind of sophistication. You know, whether you find that those arguments hold up or not, we're all supposed to understand as we scarf down our hot dogs on the 4th of July, to use Ta-Nehisi Coates' line, as we're doing all that and celebrating the good things about America, we're supposed to understand that black problems are due to a complex cocktail of things. It's endlessly complicated. It's as complicated as the Talmud. It's what we often call the race thing. Everybody takes a deep breath and starts looking over each other's shoulders when it comes up because it's so damn complicated. But then when it comes to this issue of 1619 and the Revolutionary War and whether America has been worth doing, suddenly, all of a sudden, everybody goes down to the level of finger painting. All of a sudden, it's just, <laughs> let's just chuck the whole thing. I find that radically inconsistent. Unless you're looking for a reason to feel good about yourself, in which case I genuinely pity somebody who gets their sense of worth out of painting themselves as a noble victim. I genuinely pity somebody who needs that kind of, of, of succor. Sucor? I've never said that word before. Yeah, I think but it's succor. Is it sucor? Yeah, I'm never so, going to use yeah. that word again. But yeah, that's the problem that this kind of thinking is so unsubtle. And there's so many people who can be drawn away from understanding that by the fact that they use a lot of big words. I'm disappointed. I am really disappointed in this. Yeah, I, that, that's a uh, that's a very telling observation. We can do better as uh, educated modern people than this because, in fact, the history is a lot more complicated than the fairy tale that you want to tell. And by the way, it's also more complicated than the opposite fairy tale, which is city on a hill. Everything's all perfect. Right. And, 
America a force for good without any critical uh, dimension to it. Um, it's complicated. <laughs> Very. Glenn, well, what did you think about Kobe Bryant and the coverage of his his unfortunate death? Well, I gather that that is a reference to the issue of his sexual assault charge and the, how is. much play it gets in the thing. I mean, Kobe Bryant was a great athlete and, uh, the N- NBA, I watched the NBA for entertainment in the evenings. I put on, put on a basketball game and I can spend an hour or two watching it. So I like basketball. I like basketball and I'm, I was no particular fan of Kobe, but I can appreciate that he was one of the greats. You know, he comes, uh, what is it, after Michael Jordan, but before LeBron James, he's kind of the bridge superstar, whatever, whatever. I thought that I'm about to say something controversial, John. I'm not surprised. I would be surprised if any obituary neglected to mention the sexual assault charge, such an (laughs) omission uh, would be an act of, in effect, distortion. Okay, so mm-hmm. an obituary should mention it. I think, however, that if I'm a, I don't know, commentator at uh, uh, ESPN or um, at the Chicago Tribune or something like that, and I'm writing a comment or a short piece in which I'm, uh, you know, mourning the loss of Kobe Bryant, I don't know that I have to feel obliged to mention the sexual assault charge to find the worst thing that he ever did and to uh, make sure that the reader doesn't uh, go to bed without thinking about that. I'm not sure. That's, that's a judgment call. I would not criticize somebody for saying, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't, you know, that's not the thing that I want to mention and, and for not talking about it. I mean, it's, I'm not, it's not an imperative that it has to be mentioned. Although I think in an obituary, it would have to be mentioned uh, because it is a significant fact. And the omission of the fact would itself be an act of trying to somehow, I think, manipulate the reader. Um, I don't know the name of the woman at the Washington Post who was disciplined for tweeting something uh, with a link to the sexual assault. Uh, frankly, I thought that was in poor taste. I thought the tweet was in poor taste. I thought it was kind of snarky, kind of churlish. I mean, kind of mean, mm. kind of mean. Right. Let's not forget he's a rapist. Okay. Right. Frankly, I don't know that he's a rapist. He wasn't convicted in court of anything. He came to an agreement with the person, uh, as I understand the facts of the case. I'm not sure exactly what happened. He must have admitted to something. I'm not sure exactly what he admitted to. I he doubt did. that he admitted to rape. but He, he kind of did. He kind of said, oh, I think what he said was, in retrospect, I can realize, while at the time I thought it was consensual, in retrospect, I can see that she didn't think it was consensual. And remember that this thing involved lots of blood stains. So we're talking about not just, I wish I had done it. Okay, so let's not try to minimize it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm I'm not. I'm I'm not talking about how do we talk about a public figure who dies tragically and what's being said about it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, obviously people are going to have different views about that. And there's some people who are going to feel that that was really the most important thing to remember about Kobe Bryant. And, uh, in fact, that he kind of got off more uh, easily than he ought to have gotten off reputation wise. He wasn't prevented from playing basketball again after that. He wasn't 
kept out of, uh, you know, the iconography of uh, this thing that a lot of kids are going to have his jersey or poster of him up in the bedroom or whatever. And uh, Kobe is still Kobe. We haven't been able to uh, deplatform Kobe. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought, yeah, I, um, I had a hard time with it because as soon as I heard the news, it occurred to me immediately. I mean, I found yeah, that well. news back then quite searing and I thought, hmm, what are they going to do about that part? And yeah, like the, the short announcements over about the next 24 hours tended not to mention it. Anything any longer than that tended to give it a line or two. And then with the Washington Post reporter, I was, I was, I knew that was coming. Somebody was going to do something like that. And I thought the issue is how much so soon do we need to discuss that thing that he did? And I'm thinking this is somebody who, you know, died a tragic, scary, sudden, unforeseen death with his daughter by his side. It happened 10 minutes ago. They're pulling the corpses out of the wreckage. Do we need to roast him right now for that? And yeah, if the Times or something does a long obituary, of course, it has to be mentioned and not just in one line. But do we need to bring that up every time we mention his name while the wreckage is still smoking? And I must admit that even what he did made me think, and I think, frankly, that it's obvious that he violated her whatever he was thinking she was thinking he 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 violated her and hurt her yeah let let me acknowledge that i don't know all of the facts or don't remember them so you may want to fill in that a little bit but in any case that's that's all public record and i I just thought what when when are we going to talk about it and how are we going to talk about it and you know it came up and i remember reading one piece written by a woman who outlined all of the details all of the horrific stuff i think the implication was that that wasn't the only time he had been accused of something like that and the idea being that yes that should be the main thing we think of when we think of him and this is where that leaves me america is a rehearsal and we've come away since 2003 Today, if Kobe Bryant were revealed as doing exactly what he did, I think the repercussions would be much greater after roughly Harvey Weinstein. So I look back on 2003, you know, this happened back, you know, in the era of the iPod at this point, you know, digital photos are relatively new. And I think, yeah, that happened and it went out in the media and the right things were said, but then he just kind of moved on. And I, frankly, I always thought, and I'm not trying to sound very PC about women. I always thought, isn't it interesting that, you know, he's still this hero and it's not even brought up anymore. That wouldn't happen now. And so far be it from me to speak oh, for women. Also, but I feel like, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to interrupt, John. It wouldn't happen to Mike Tyson either. Right. I mean, yeah, Mike couldn't I, we, get away we, with it. This, you know, probably needs an analysis. I mean, why did Kobe, he was in Los Angeles. Did that help that he had a lot of prominent people in the entertainment and the media industry that uh, thought uh, uh, better of him, perhaps, than you would just by reading uh, uh, what he had done? I'm not sure. Um, I gather that Kobe Bryant was a rather unusual American athlete, that he was fluent in Italian, that he had been raised abroad because his father was playing professional sports in Italy while he was a kid, Um, Mm -hmm. that he was probably... I don't know, more sophisticated, more articulate, more worldly and cosmopolitan than your typical guy off the sandlot of an inner city community who ends up in the NBA. Uh, Maybe the uh, general um, sexual predator 
aura didn't fit on him so well because of the way he looked, the way he handled himself, the kind of people that he associated with, things right. of this kind. He wasn't thuggish in in that way that might, according, uh, leave you with some as opposed uh, black to, athletes. As yeah, opposed well, to I say Mike Tyson, but there are many who to whom that could apply. And he and Tyson, well, her name was Desiree Washington, and it sounds like, from what I remember, that was further back, but it was rather similar circumstances. And to the extent that he got away with it, that, you know, there's still, he's still spoken of respectfully in some quarters. It almost seems as if people are thinking, well, yeah, what would you expect of him? And I think maybe there was a little bit of, you have to have respect for this impulsive black man who started out at the bottom and has been exploited and has had no reason to learn how to control himself or something like that. But yeah, those sorts of things do figure, but it's a, it's a different time now for Kobe Bryant to be exposed as having done that. And then to kind of march on, that would be much less likely now. And I'm glad. Now, you and I had conversations. Would it be just if he had done that last year and then never been allowed to play basketball again or do a TV commercial and had to start, you know, selling pencils? Should have gone that far. And there are a lot of people now today who would say, yes, if he had done that, that's his life. It's over. I have such a hard time saying yeah, how I, I feel time about with that, that too. But I think I, that, you know, it's a rehearsal. And I think there are two people who are listening to this who know that this rehearsal analogy of mine is from the musical 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. This is a shout out to them. Yes, I'm getting it from Bernstein and um, yeah, Alan I'm J. not one of those two people, so <laughs> it, it went right over my head. I'm going to hear from it. But it comes from <laughs> this failed musical about America as a rehearsal. And at one point in rehearsals, they had them walking around in half costumes. It was this whole metaphor. And I always thought wow. that, was, that was pretty touching. And this is 1976, but I know about it as lore. And it's a rehearsal. But things, progress happens. It happens slowly. But it's easier to believe that progress doesn't happen than to allow that it happens slowly. And that's the moral of a lot of these things. Okay, that's well said, John. What else have we got? I've been thinking about 1619 and Kobe Bryant. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Well, I'm teaching Khalil Muhammad's book called The Condemnation of Blackness. Yeah. Right now. And it will seem a stretch, but it's actually very relevant to what we've just been saying. Khalil Muhammad is an historian. Uh, he teaches at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he was trained at Rutgers uh, under David Levering Lewis, the fabled uh African-American man of letters, historian, biographer of Du Bois, biographer of King. This is Lewis. Uh, and uh, uh, Khalil is one of his students who's done very well and is now a tenured professor at Harvard. And his book is called The Condemnation of Blackness. And it was published, uh, I don't know, nine years ago or so, Harvard University Press. And what he does in the book is take us back to the turn of the 20th century and he revisits the writing in places like the Atlantic, uh, one of your employers, John, uh, like the Atlantic Monthly uh, and other places about the Negro problem. And the Negro problem in 1890 was that less than 30 years prior, emancipation had liberated uh, many hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved persons who by and large were impoverished, landless, peasantry, illiterate, 
and of course, there were some skills in that population because the uh, the slave owners needed skilled workmen for certain tasks, but largely unskilled. And the question was whether or not they could be absorbed into the American polity effectively. Was this an indigestible mass doomed to either permanent marginal status or even worse, extinction? And there were these arguments were explicitly being made. People were looking at uh, mortality statistics. How many are dying in the cities on the eastern seaboard from consumption, tuberculosis? Um, and uh, how many were involved in criminal activity and seeing higher numbers of blacks in those counts and concluding from that that they were either going to cut and slice and kill each other in barroom fights and or die from the uh, diseases that were uh, afflicting the poor throughout the industrialized world uh, to which they were especially ill-suited to adapt. And they were going to lose out in the competition to European immigrants coming from the south and the east of Europe in large numbers in these years to the United States, because those populations, although also uh, largely impoverished, were nevertheless more civilized mm-hmm. than these uh, newly freed slaves. Now, I'm saying all of that to say the reason that I thought about that was I tried to put myself in the position of uh, a uh, scholar d- doing social analysis like one of these early economists, Francis Walker is one of them who's mentioned. I just mentioned him because uh, there was a Francis Walker lecture at the American uh, Economic Association annual meetings every year for the longest time when I was a young economist because he was a towering figure in the founding of the American Economics Association in the late 19th century. And um, they were a part of this discourse of measuring and mismeasuring the Negro of uh, ascribing to, quote, the Negro, all these traits and tendencies and habits, clearly racist in our contemporary sensibility, but at the time confronted with many hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved persons who literally were at a level of development of their functioning capacities for modern society, which needed to be improved. There definitely was an issue. I don't know if I should really judge them in retrospect with the same harshness. Is economics founded on racism? Becomes one of the questions because economists were part of the statistical analytical coterie who were slicing and dicing the Negro and finding us uh, coming up short. Uh, uh, Do I learn something deep about modern social science and the use of statistical analysis and the measurement and comparison of populations from the fact that this activity went on in the years from 1890 to 1920 vis-a-vis the Negro. I'm thinking about this because I have to lecture on this to my students, and I want them to take Khalil Muhammad seriously. He's meticulous and uh, extremely detailed in his exposition of this cast of mind, which was quite widespread uh, in America uh, in these years and had consequences. You know, the Settlement House movement, largely believed that the uh, Italian and the Polish and the Irish and the Jewish impoverished immigrants were uh, treatable, could could be brought within the orbit of civilization with effort, Mm -hmm. and that you needed to understand the context of the tenements and the impoverishment and the desperation of their lives 
to see why their alcoholism rates were as high or their domestic abuse rates were what they were, or their participation in organized crime was what it was. But when it came to the Negro, what uh, a, a lot of these people, some of them were professors at Harvard or editors at major magazines, and they were they thought of themselves as progressives. The, these were the same people who were a part of the, you know, uh, progressive movement that flourished uh, in the early 20th century. They look at the Negro and they find his shortcomings to be a reflection of his intrinsic nature. Italians don't have an intrinsic nature that makes them unfit for American civilization, but the Negro just might. So that's part of the foundation that we're standing on. It's a legacy of slavery uh, and it, uh, its influences, its tentacles insinuate themselves into American life even up to this day. So, you know, I hate to um, I hate to admit I don't know Muhammad's work. I read about him, but I haven't engaged it. I think partly because my life has gotten busier since he has become prominent. Just you can't read everything. Really, just kids. I, I can't read as many nonfiction books as I used to. And I haven't gotten to him, but that sounds interesting. And I just worry that anybody would use it as grounds for saying that. This is the way people felt then. America stands upon this. And therefore, you need to reflect that into now. Is now really so different from the way people like Woodrow Wilson or even Jane Addams felt about the Negro? And I mean, yeah, it will, you, your hair goes gray reading some of the things even people like that said. One yeah. of my favorite examples, and this is less serious, but it's just, just there. You read old comic strips, if you happen to be given to doing that. You're looking at a, a beautifully drawn comic strip from about 1916. And everybody is, you know, they're walking around and they're having conversations. Everybody's white and they're drawn in a certain way and there's a charming kind of art. Then the black servant walks on and the black servant is drawn completely differently and literally looks like a gorilla. And so the, an example of this would be, for if anybody wants to check Gasoline Alley and you're reading this you know, these small town people doing these things and they're all drawn in a certain cute kind of cartoony way. But the black servant looks like a baboon, just drawn in a completely different way. You also see it in a lot of very early cartoons, especially silent cartoons. That's how black people were thought of. I think it's that way in bringing up father too. a black person walks on and looks like a gorilla. Everybody else is beautifully rendered. That's how it was. It gets better. And to say that, Today is founded on that. Well, technically it is. And you can do psychological experiments and show that there's still certain devaluations, but they're much smaller and subtler than they used to be. So, you know, props to Muhammad for doing solid scholarship. We need to know about these things. You've got to fill it in. You don't want to whitewash it. And I don't know what he thinks the modern, I have a sense from some things I've read, but I'll say here, I don't know what he thinks the modern implications of these sorts of things are supposed to be, but to look around the nation as it is right now and to insist that what looks like profound change has just been window dressing. And I don't, I'm not accusing him of saying that, but there are people who will take from his work that message. It's just unsubtle. It's a willful mental crudeness that you adapt because of certain passing pleasures that it can give you as part of a tribe, as we talked about and to assuage insecurities, if you happen to have any, or just to make a colorful noise, if you're bored. They can serve, you know, all, all those persons. Again, I'm not accusing Muhammad of this. No, I want but to yeah. say something on his behalf. I know you're not accusing him, but I don't want there to be any doubt about 
the fact that he's a, a subtle and sophisticated thinker yes. who is not guilty yeah. of the kind of mistake that we were ascribing to the 1619 right. Project earlier. He does have his yeah. politics. I mean, I, I think if he were here and uh, I you know, hope that he will come on the Glenn Show at some point so we can discuss this kind of thing. Uh, you say something like, um, just beware when they start r- running off a ream of statistics about African-American homicide rates and uh, uh, participation in gangs and, you know, the black family being, uh, you know, female headed and whatnot like that, because these framing moves are consequential. The way in which we talk about crime is consequential. The racialization of crime is still with us. The way that the crack cocaine epidemic was treated compared to the opioid epidemic today tells us a little bit something about the subtle Yes. influences of this history. So it's not as if there's a straight line derivative. Uh, it was like this before, and that's why it's like this now. But we can learn from this history about uh, certain kinds of racialized conceptions of stereotyping, of lazy habits of thought, of the politicization of people's racial fears and attitudes and so forth That uh, that is uh, useful to know, not to lose track of. Something like that. Maybe I'm you criticizing... But I think that's that's roughly it. That's really important. And I want to reiterate, I am not even out of the side of my mouth implying that, you know, Muhammad is any of those three things that I said. It's just the way some people might read what he wrote. But, you know, you're making me think, Glenn, about maybe the next book or maybe the third to next book. Say say this quickly, John, because I'm down to 10 percent power here and I'm going to go dark at any moment now. (laughs) Real fast. I really do believe that we're much more sophisticated than in the past. So, yes, you you can learn from the past, but I really do believe that you can look at that kind of racialization from 100 years ago. There's a part of me that always thinks, goodness, we've come a long way. You know, the rising IQs, the Flynn effect. Yeah. A lot has happened that make a lot of that sort of thing much less likely to settle in in such an extreme way. There's evidence of it on all levels of humanity. Somebody ought to write something about it. Anyway, to be continued. Well, maybe that's you. Maybe. Yeah, we'll see. All right, John, uh, thanks for coming on the Glenn Show. Glenn Lowry signing off. John McWhorter, the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. Uh, we'll see you again soon out there in Blogging Heads land. Next time. <laughs>